Hi everyone, this is Holly Gilbert Stowell, your host of Security Management Highlights. Thanks for tuning in to this bonus episode and be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. London is still reeling from the March 22nd attack that left three people dead and more than 50 injured outside the Palace of Westminster, home to the British Parliament. It was the largest assault on the city since the 2005 transit bombings. Authorities are still investigating what motivated 52-year-old British citizen Khalid Massoud to drive a car into pedestrians on the Westminster Bridge at more than 75 miles per hour, killing two people and injuring dozens. He then rammed his car into the railings at Bridge Street and the north perimeter of the House of Parliament and fatally stabbed an unarmed police officer. Law enforcement quickly responded and shot Massoud, who later succumbed to his injuries. The vehicular attack is similar to one seen in Nice and Berlin, and while it presents a threat different from an active shooter, still warrants a similar response. So how can organizations and individuals prepare against these types of attacks? What protections can be put into place in open public spaces such as outside the Houses of Parliament? Joining us now to talk about the London attacks is Steve Cremando. Steve is an ASIS member and a behavioral scientist by training. He focuses on human factors in disasters, terrorism, and emergencies. Steve works closely with security professionals and other clients to help them understand the behaviors associated with an array of security challenges. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the podcast. Holly, thanks so much for having me today. Thanks for being here. So we know that British intelligence at some point had contact with this guy, but he was off their radar at this point. And investigators haven't found any direct links between this attacker and ISIS. Do you think he would be considered a lone wolf? Does it matter if he was just inspired or connected to the group formally? Well, I, I think there's a few ways to look at it. And first of all, you know, excuse me uh, in terms of the terminology. I, I'm, I've been kind of, I think, coached over the last few years by uh, intelligence agencies to use the term homegrown violent extremist instead of lone wolf, but I'm going to be speaking about the same thing. Okay. And the reason in the change of language, I mean, it sounds so much as, you know, semantic, is there was a feeling that the term lone wolf almost kind of romanticized the, you know, the, the behavior. And in a way of kind of understanding it, there's been this kind of movement away from, from the term. But we're speaking about the same thing, about the, the lone actor terrorist. Some may remember that right after the Pulse nightclub attack in June last year, June 2016, that Al-Qaeda had published in one of their Inspire magazines a special four-page supplement. And this was very, very interesting. It was very rare for them to do this. And it called upon their followers to conduct these sort of single-person, lone actor attacks. They also said, attack general gatherings. Look for places where large numbers of people are gathered. And the second was this concept of what they referred to as a combatant public, which is to say there's no longer civilians. And the year before, the call was, you know, attack military personnel, attack law enforcement officers. But after the June attack at the Pulse nightclub, this operational guide is published, and it says, don't wait for a command, but if you feel inspired, do it with, by any means and do it in public gatherings and do these attacks against any sort of civilians at all. Now, when you combine all of those general theories, it says that you as a lone actor have license from the organization. You may be inspired, you may be radicalized, 
But regardless of your connection to the organization, this is a charge to you. This is a commission to you to conduct these sort of attacks against Western targets by any means at any time with no further instruction from us. So it's the recipe to initiate this sort of act. Now it goes one step further. Just about a year ago, we started seeing much more specific instructions in both ISIS publications and in Al-Qaeda publications with very specific instructions for vehicular attacks. They went into great depth about the sort of vehicles that would work best, talked about details like, you know, that had uh, two rear tires on each side, they had greater traction, greater horsepower. They talked about the way to, to drive and how to pick up maximum speed, what to look for, what to avoid. And in some of these publications, there was actually instruction and guidance on how to conduct a follow-on knife attack, that once your vehicle was stopped, how to go on and kind of finish the act, as it were, or continue the act with firearms or with knives or with other weapons, you know, not just to stop with, with the vehicle stopping. So there's been this playbook, and there's been very good instruction. And these, these publications, they're, they're very glossy, they're very persuasive, and they're very technical in giving great guidance to the would-be attacker on exactly how to execute these attacks. So to your initial question of the, the lone actor, you can be in the current climate a lone actor with varying degrees of identification with these groups, varying degrees of inspiration, and with minimal contact or, or actual connection and still be conducting your personal attack for the same sort of ideological reason, then you have now this open license to conduct these attacks as you see fit. So let's go to the next question, which I think is great to consider. We've seen a lot of active shooter attacks as acts of terrorism, and that's sort of the buzzword right now. But how does that compare to the London-style attack of a stabbing and vehicle assault? How would handling the response and the recovery and even the preparation for that, how do they overlap and how do they defer? They actually overlap more than they differ. I mean, if we think about just the general concept of mass violence, right, I think there's two broad strokes or two broad directions for, for understanding this. And one is to talk about the, the hazard, to talk about the nature of the attacks, both active shooter attacks and, and the vehicular attack, uh, and then to talk a little bit about the defense, what organizations, what communities, what individuals can do. And, and one kind of leads right, right comfortably, I believe, to the other. So let's think first about the attack. If we were to look at the, the comparisons between the active shooter, and I'm speaking now about a classic active shooter event using kind of the FBI definition of someone looking to, to shoot and kill people in a confined and populated space. Um, what we know is, you know, nobody snaps, right? This is not someone, whether it's the shooter or the driver of the vehicle, didn't wake up this morning having a bad day and say, you know, I'm setting out to do this. All this required a period of pre-operational preparedness, uh, maybe recognizance, maybe um, rehearsal, all kinds of things had to be put in place. And, and we see that in the run-up to an active shooter event as well, that the actual preparation and all of that begins sometimes very long um, before the actual attack. 
So this is kind of predatory violence, this mass violence. It's not impulsive, reactive. It's not someone who, you know, has has lost it in some way. It's someone who very carefully and methodically has thought through how to execute this attack. But the other things to think about is when you think about the active shooter risk, it is someone who picks a soft target. So it's the movie theater, it's the school, it's the house of worship. It's that place that is fairly easy to, to access. It's not a hard sort of target. They look for target rich environments and that's true both in the vehicular attack and the mass shooting they're looking for places with lots of people because from the mindset of the attacker they're really looking for numbers they're looking for a very large casualty count what tends to result from those two dynamics is most of the victims are randomly selected those three elements there and there are more you can make more comparisons those three elements you know, they start to suggest there's a lot of similarity between a mass shooting event and a mass vehicular attack they're, they're mass violence we know the motive is very similar if we think about the mass uh, vehicle attack is someone who usually picks a place not just where it's target rich, but it very often is symbolic. It's it's something like uh, Bastille Day in France. It's Independence Day. It has political significance. It's the Christmas market in Berlin. It has religious significance. If we think about some of our shooter events, they've also been at times at places in which there are public gatherings for different sorts of, of reasons. But at the bottom line, if we think of the nature of terrorism or the motive of terrorism as causing the maximum degree of psychological, social, and economic disruption, at some point people say it's no longer safe to go to the mall or the movie theater or these other places because I'm worried about an active shooter. And then we introduce into the formula, oh, it's no longer safe to go to a parade, a festival, a farmer's market because I'm worried about a vehicular attack. It starts to have that effect of eroding um, community cohesion it kind of erodes people's willingness to participate or go out and, and be part of things. Um, so that's kind of the strategic aspect of it from the terrorist standpoint. And the last of these, just to touch base on that quickly, is a, a terrorist tactic or terrorist idea that's known as diversity of tactics, which means once we get good at identifying and thwarting mass shooting events, guess what, they introduce a new sort of attack, it's the vehicular attack, and what that does is it leaves the public feeling very, very um, vulnerable, very, again, powerlessness or helpless that the terrorists always seem to be one step ahead. When you really drill down on this, it's not a new kind of uh, phenomena. I mean, vehicular attacks go way back. Uh, some were initially used for breaching a gate and then attackers would exit the vehicle and initiate an attack. Some were vehicles that were carrying um, explosives and or, or using the vehicle, just the vehicle itself as a weapon, which seems to be more common right now. But the nature of this is that all of these bear great similarities. They're all just variations of the same theme of mass violence. So when we start to think then about moving from the strategic importance or, or, or the why terrorists would conduct this to the actual tactics, we know that the terrorist in a vehicular attack is, again, looking for that open, large public gathering. They have looked for places that were are poorly defended, don't have a lot of barriers, uh, in which people have dropped their guard and are having fun or being complacent or not necessarily uh, alert. Um, and they're looking to create the maximum carnage, obviously, before they're stopped. Random target selection, a target-rich environment, all the same similarities that we've discussed. So think about this. When we, when we speak to people, whether they're school-age children or they're in any other setting about active shooter, we have begun to teach the public 
about what to do. Should they find themselves in a shot fire, shots fired environment, whether at the shopping center, they're at the movie theater, wherever they are, wh- what to do. And regardless of what model you subscribe to, if you're a believer in on hide fight or alert or Alice or any other certain you know methodology, um, essentially what we know is we're we're trying to prepare people in terms of their mindset, reduce feelings of of helplessness, that there's nothing I could do, I'm totally defenseless, and actually give them some basic tactics to use themselves in terms of of survival and safety. So my point to this is, if we are training or teaching people about the defense to other sorts of mass violence, such as an active shooter, knowing that this is an evolving or emerging risk, vehicular attack, does it not make sense that in different ways we start to share information about how to make yourself safe? You get on an airplane, the flight attendant reads you the safety instructions. If you sit down in a movie theater, there's an announcement before the film about you know looking for your exits. And you very clearly anymore hear in the, the tone and the message, it's not just for fire anymore, right? If there's an emergency, these are the exits. I think that since this seems to be a, as I said, an emerging risk. And while it's still just a variant of mass violence, we continue to educate the public. So let me give you some examples. If someone asked me, Steve, I'm going myself, I'm bringing my family to a parade this weekend. I'm really concerned about what I've seen on the news about about vehicle attacks. Is there anything I should know? Some of the things I might say, hey, listen, uh, of course, we know they're still statistically rare. Uh, but they can happen like other mass violence anywhere, anytime. There's no place that's necessarily immune. And they're very, very hard to defend against from a security and a law enforcement standpoint. The kind of target hardening we do to prevent that, I mean, bollards and barriers and things of this nature, they start to create a less fun and inviting atmosphere when you're so security intense. But here's some things you could do for you and your family. The first thing is we get to a parade most people want to stand as close to the street as they can so you get a great view. I understand that. Most people who are hurt and killed in vehicular attacks are those people who are closest to the curb line. So what is the balance then between fun and safety? You know, Can I be in the crowd and not necessarily be right at the curb line because I know that's going to change my risk profile? Where do I stand on the street? And advice I would give is, you know what? Stand on the street corner. Stand at a crossroads because we know in most vehicular attacks, the vehicles look, or the drivers looking to pick up maximum speed, they're going straight. They're usually not making a lot of turns. So if you've got a side street behind you and you could escape that way, if you've gone in with a high level of situational awareness, uh, you may have identified some different resources. Now, right there, I just want to go on a, a tangent for a second. When we teach folks as security professionals about the concept of situational awareness, I believe it's very important that we share with them or we guide them that what they should be looking for is both risks and resources. Risks are the things, obviously, that may hurt them, but resources are things that may help them if this goes wrong. So as they go to the parade route or they go to the the fairgrounds, to be looking for those things that may be places or, or sites of dangerousness. But what would help me and my family if this goes badly, if something happens? Have we thought about the exits? Have we thought about places we could duck into uh, for safe harbor? Have we thought about where there's 
heavy sort of fortifications, you know, that, that we could duck behind. It's a barrier. It's a vehicle for cover and concealment. Am I going into the environment with that level of situational awareness for the two R's? And I think that we do not serve our clients or the public well if when we speak about the concepts of situational awareness, we're only talking about looking for the risks. We're only looking for the things that may harm us. So we could drill it down from what we've learned about mass violence to how vehicular violence is a subset of that. We could take some of the lessons we've learned about preventing and responding to other acts of mass violence and active shooters, and we can apply it to this as well. But I think the public needs to understand that what we're already talking to them about in other kinds of violence, such as shooter events, a lot of the same mindset about being vigilant, about good situational awareness, about knowing that, you know, initial response is to, to get out of the way, but to, to keep distance from these, these threats. I think it's a lot of the same things that we're doing already just need slight modification. But the public shouldn't feel, and I think our security professionals shouldn't feel, that this is an entirely new phenomenon or an entirely new animal that we have to deal with. It is a variant of mass violence that does require some modification or approach, but it shouldn't be a really heavy lift. That's a great point. That should help us feel like, you know, we're not inventing the wheel all over again here. We're just drawing on some tried and true lessons. And and like you said, adapting a little bit to the different mode of attack. Uh, that kind of takes us into the next question, which is in regards to what type of physical, especially security measures, can be possible in an open environment. We've seen vehicle barriers go up. You said it's always a reaction to the latest and greatest uh, threat used by the terrorists, but how possible and feasible is that? In a place like London, you said, you know, these are significant landmarks. That's exactly where people don't want to feel like they're being kept out. They don't want to see these big barriers. So how do we grapple with that? That's, you know, one of the most difficult challenges in security is how do we find that sweet spot between, you know, the right level of protection where it doesn't have a chilling or a negative effect on people. Certainly all of us who frequent lower Manhattan or go to the White House can look back historically when things were not fortified the way they are, you know, maybe nostalgically and say, well, things have changed so much. It's a very, very different sort of formula. I think it's one of these things where we start to to slowly introduce measures in a way that people acclimate to because really to fortify against barrier, to, you know, against vehicle attacks means some big, heavy objects. It means bollards and gates. It means barriers of different types. But it also may mean changing from our standpoint, from the professional standpoint, changing some of the venues, some of the ways these events happen. And some may not be changeable. If you think about something very traditional like the Thanksgiving Day Parade in New York City and such and other you know, national events, there's kind of a tradition to things that would sway us and say, well, we really can't change that that much. And I got to tell you, I mean, I hate to say this as someone, you know, here offering expert advice, but I don't know that I have or we have the exact formula. I think it's a little bit of experimentation to say, you know, how do we continue to look at maybe technologies? Um, How do we look at traditional physical security, as I said, uh, different barriers and such that would prevent a vehicle entry? But I don't think we've got it right yet. I don't know that we exactly know how in any level of security to find that exact comfortable balance point where it 
makes us safer and doesn't in some way also you know, raise anxieties or, or change the, the dynamics. So that's kind of a real conundrum in our field. And I, I don't know in terms of vehicular attack exactly the answer. I think because we see these attacks on the rise, we're going to start to see some more creativity come into the market in terms of detecting and deterring these. I saw someone in the press a day or two ago saying that, you know, there was some sort of technology they were introducing that could disable the the engine, you know, electronically from a distance. I just know that as these risks emerge and evolve, there do tend to be entrepreneurs and scientists and, and good thinkers who see the problem and start to come up with more creative solutions. But on this, I don't have a great answer just yet, Holly. I'm sorry I don't have a you know silver bullet for this one. And like you mentioned before, I suppose, you know, the control of vehicles is just as difficult as the control of firearms purchases. So there's a long chain of events always leading up to obtaining that weapon. And that's something that greater, you know, law and society also has to to grapple with. Yeah, I mean, that's a real challenge with the vehicular assault, right? I mean, because someone, uh, and in different countries as well, may be much, much harder to obtain Um, firearms. Um, It certainly would raise different red flags, hopefully, if someone were trying to acquire or purchase bomb building materials. But man, it's easy enough to own a vehicle, rent a vehicle, borrow a vehicle, steal a vehicle, and have access to something of that size. And, And you know what we saw in London the other day is it does not have to be the huge cargo truck that was used in Nice. This was a, a you know little gray Hyundai SUV and it did catastrophic damage. So that's an incredibly tough sort of thing to defend against because I mean just vehicles are, are ubiquitous. People of all types have access to them. And you know, how do we start guarding against that sort of thing? That that's a very very tricky sort of situation. So it almost puts us in a reactive sort of posture. It becomes a little tricky to prevent unless you have some sort of intelligence that someone's on a pathway to violence and maybe researching or thinking about that. But man, oh man, I mean, vehicles are just so readily accessible mm-hmm. compared to you know, other sorts of, of weapons that it, that becomes a real trick. Absolutely. So given that we're going to be grappling with this and solving it for a long time, besides the personal protective measures that you pointed out when you go to a event or a crowded area, what can organizations do to prepare against this type of attack, you know, whether it be parliament or a small mom and pop business? I think that the solutions or the approaches, at least, are always a blend of both physical security and security practices. And on the security practice side of this, it's easier for me at least to discuss being kind of from the behavioral sciences that it does involve participation of those people who would be potentially targets. I mean, we have an old saying kind of in in psychology or, or behavioral sciences that action binds anxiety. You know, giving people things to do, giving them clear instructions about how to make themselves safer, one, may actually make them safer, and two, helps reduce some of the, the sense of, of helplessness, of powerlessness against different sorts of attacks. So I think it's a dialogue between whether it's family members or employees of a company or employees of government uh, and the public at large to say, hey, listen, we will do our part, whether that's the employer or the government. 
and we are maybe spending or we're developing these technologies, we're putting up bollards and, and barriers, we're increasing the security forces, we're doing these physical security things, uh, but there's different security practices as well that need to be in, put in place, and some of those are things that you, the, the citizens, the civilian public can do, and that's by raising their knowledge and awareness about this sort of risk. You know, I spoke a little bit about this. We, we've learned from attack to attack with vehicles what the drivers do and what they don't do, so it's, it's a little bit predictable that once an attack begins, it tends to progress this way. And we could say that with about the same confidence that most active shooter events follow a fairly common trajectory. They, they tend to be very brief, like the vehicle attack. It tends to end you know, in a certain way. So we can start educating and I think bringing people into the equation as partners. So the message is the same message I use all the time. You know, that security is something we do with people. It's not something we do to people. And it's a shared obligation, you know, between the company and its employees, between the public and the government. There are things that the organizations can and should do, and there's things that each person needs to do themselves to, to make the formula work. I think it's probably not a bad time for somewhat of a, at least an initial public information campaign. I think it's time to start educating people about what to do in all types of mass violence. And I think education, awareness, and sharing some skills with them tends to be part of the solution or part of the approach. So I think it's the two-prong, a blend of security practices and a blend of security sort of technologies. Yes, we definitely need to stay on the information sharing front, the threat sharing front, and the awareness piece of it. That's something all of us uh, can affect. So thank you so much for sharing your expertise and for letting us use you as a resource in light of this attack. And hopefully we can learn from it and prevent the next one. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Holly. And I hope it's a topic we don't have to speak about anytime uh, too soon again. But uh, I'm happy to have shared the information and I hope people find it useful. 